it is great for me to be here with you. I've met some of you, but a lot of you I haven't, because like I said, um, you guys just keep growing. It's going to be a weird morning, because, you know, Revelation is so far at the back of your Bible, my little Bible doesn't want to stay open. I don't know what to do about that. Does anybody have any good ideas? I'll just hold it. Anyways, my name is Andrew Clausen, and um, I am one of the pastoral fellows here at Christ Community, and so... um, which, if any of you know, Gabe was a pastoral fellow before he became the downtown campus. Our, our fellowship is kind of this um, pastoral residency where we get to be here at Christ Community with you for two years, and we get to learn the ropes of pastoral ministry while being a pastor. And so um, we're associate pastors in the fullest sense of the term, and yet at the same time we're kind of pastors in training in that we get to go. Um, uh, we just get to learn a lot. There's a lot of opportunities for us to learn as leaders, and then we get sent out into the world. And... Uh, into the world. I mean, we get sent to another church. It's probably a better way to say that. Um, we get sent to a different church and um, to pastor there. And uh, so, and uh, I've been here for a, a little over a year and a half now, and I'm starting to look for what's next. And hopefully, the Lord takes us to a church where, you know, my gifts can can meet up with their needs, and um, God can be glorified through that. So. Um, yeah, hopefully you all had a great Christmas. Me and my family had a great Christmas. My wife Greer and I celebrated our fifth Christmas together. Five years of marriage. What, what? Whoop. Okay. And uh, so that's exciting. And we have two children. Our daughter, Myra, uh, had her first Christmas this year, which is really exciting. Okay. Yeah, we can clap for that. All right. Great. Um, and that's really exciting. She's eight months old now, and um, she won't remember anything, so it doesn't matter. But it's still really fun for us because we took lots of photos. Um, and I have to tell you about a couple of really exciting things. First and foremost, how many people here are wearing clothes they got for Christmas? Go ahead. It's okay. I am. Okay. Wow. Not as many as I expected. Okay. So I am. That's exciting. We get to wear stuff on, you know, the first Sunday after Christmas that we got on Christmas. The second thing I want to tell everybody here, because I was just so excited to see it, is yesterday when I was working out, I saw on, on the TV this thing, this infomercial for a bacon bowl. Okay. Have you guys seen this thing? It looks, it's a great idea, isn't it? You can make a bowl to put things in out of bacon. It cooks the bacon and then you can put like eggs and stuff. This has nothing to do with my sermon, literally nothing. But I was so excited when I saw it. Everybody, uh, Father's Day is like five or six months away. Get a bacon bowl. I mean, that is exciting. Christmas is 12 months away. Get a bacon bowl. Just get it for somebody, anybody. Anyways, I thought I'd share that with you. Why don't I pray and then we'll get started. We'll jump into God's word and um, we'll do the thing. So, Lord Jesus, we praise you for this day and um, the opportunity we have just to worship you together corporately, um, this good thing where we come together and exalt your name and, and bring you glory through our meeting and our offering of praise. And Jesus, we ask in this time that as we open your word, that you would make yourself clear, that you would make your gospel evident and compelling and powerful, not only in our hearts, but as we take it out into this world, as we share with others who don't know you the good news of what you have done on behalf of those who would believe through your death on the cross and resurrection. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we've been, as Gabe said, we've been walking through this thing this year called Open Here, right? This, this kind of church-wide pursuit 
to start or strengthen the habit of daily Bible reading. And if any of you have been doing it, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a great thing for our church as a whole. I, I get to see, because I'm a fellow, I get to see all the four campuses once in a while. I get to move around a little, although I'm tethered to the Leewood campus. And I think most of us are really growing if we're doing open here. It's been a great thing for our church, so we're going to continue to do it. And what's been great about 2013 is the, the reading plan for open, three, open here has been walking through the Bible, right? And so one chapter a day, every day, walking through the big story of who God is and what he has done. And that's been a really exciting thing. And today, we, we have the last kind of sermon within Open Here 2013 where we're walking through the whole Bible. As Gabe said, in 2014, we're going we're gonna to sit and, and chew on the book of Hebrews for an extended period of time, which is also really exciting. But today is kind of our last sermon in Open Here, which is really exciting because Revelation 21 and 22 give us kind of the bookend to the whole story of God's plan. Revelation 21 and 22 really does give some closure to this book that we love and this book that gives us kind of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so it's exciting for us to do that. But before we get this vision for for where we're going to go, we have to look back and see where we've been, right? You can't know where you're going unless you actually know where you've been, right? So I think it's worth us doing a little bit of a review, a little bit of a recap, just to get the whole story before we jump into Revelation 21 and 22. So I'm not going to be going through the passages, but hopefully some of these stories will, um, yeah, just come to mind as we've read through the Bible. So first, in creation, God created all things, right? God created all things out of nothing, and he created, most notably, his image bearers, mankind, right? Adam and Eve, and it was, they were in the garden with God and everything was good. But shortly thereafter, they sinned against God, right? They disobeyed. They disobeyed God's word, and, and sin brought this, the world into this tailspin of destruction and decay and death, right? And then, but God still promised, God still promised salvation. And then he brought through the patriarchs, through Abraham and his descendants, God brought this promise even to more fulfillment, but he, he created a people. He started a people for himself and his name and his glory, and that people grew over time. But before they knew it, they got really big, and then they fell into slavery. They fell into bondage in Egypt, right? And, and God's people cried out for help. So God sent a redeemer, somebody who would go between. God gave them Moses to bring them out of the promised land. And God did bring them out of the promised land. And then as they're wandering around in the desert in disobedience and murmuring and and mumbling and whining, um, God was taking them towards the promised land. You know, they walk through the Red Sea. God then um, took them to the edge of the promised land with Joshua. And um, eventually they went into the promised land, this place of blessing, this place of rest, this place that God had promised to them saying, this is where you and I will meet. This is where your blessing will be fulfilled. But before they knew it, before too long, they started asking for a king. They wanted what everybody on the block had, right? A king. God wasn't good enough for them, so they decided they wanted a king like everybody else had, so they cried out for a king, so God finally gave them a king. After a number of kings who failed and failed and failed, some good, but really all of them for the most part failed in large part, eventually God's people, the kingdom split in half. And because of the people's disobedience, because they wanted a king more than they wanted their true king, um, God sent them into exile. And God's people, once again, were in bondage. They were enslaved. And they cried out for their Redeemer once again. 
So God came through yet again and redeemed them from exile. He took them back to his promised land in waves. Took them back to the place of promised rest. But it wasn't quite the same. It wasn't quite the same as it was the first time. So they cried out for their true king. They cried out for the Lord's Christ. They cried out for the Messiah. And then on Tuesday and Wednesday, we got to celebrate this good news of great joy for all people that Jesus, the Messiah, has come, has come to God's people. And that's an exciting thing. And then what happened? Well, Jesus grew up, right? And he lived a sinless life, a sinless life. He died an unjust death on the cross. He was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And he roamed the earth for 40 days, telling people all about himself, and then eventually was ascended up to heaven, and then gave birth to his church through his spirit, and the church exploded, right? Just, just blew up on the scene. And that's kind of the age that we're living in now, right? The church is still growing. And yet, Revelation gives us this picture that I think um, all of us would agree is true, where, where sin and death still reigns in one sense in this world, and yet God's gospel is moving forward in the hearts of people. And Revelation really brings out this tension. It's one of the best things about Revelation. And Revelation really gets a bad rap pretty often, right? Revelation is kind of like the Leviticus of the New Testament. I heard somebody say that Hebrews is the Leviticus of the New Testament. I don't think that's true. I think Revelation is because nobody wants to read Leviticus. And very few people want to read Revelation. And I can understand why in some ways. And yet, Revelation is a beautiful book for a number of reasons. Most notably, that it is ultimately Christ-centered. I mean, it just drips with goodness about Jesus. And so Revelation is this beautiful book that not only tells us what is going to happen, though it does do that, but tells us what's happening right now and tells us how to live in the everyday in our long wait for Jesus. Hopefully not too much longer. So I want to think through Revelation real briefly, and then we will, I promise, eventually we will get into our passage. First, a couple of things in reading Revelation. I think it's worth just thinking through, how do we read Revelation well? And the first thing is this. This will help us in in my sermon. I promise this isn't a waste of time. First, Revelation is truth, okay? This is an important point. Sometimes people will say that all this imagery and symbolism, all these things aren't truth. But John will say in chapter 17 of his gospel that God's word is truth. And Revelation is God's truth. And there is truth there. Now, truth is conveyed in different ways, right? Truth can be conveyed in multiple different ways. Psalms will convey truth very differently than Luke will convey truth in Acts. And Revelation is, is no different. It, 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 uh, the book of Revelation conveys truth um, in a different way, and we'll get to that in just a second. But what's important to note is that there's still truth, that Revelation is God's word, and that's exciting, and we can read it. The second thing I want to note is that uh, Revelation is full of symbolism and imagery. And I think this is where most of us get lost in trying to read Revelation because it just doesn't seem to make sense. And I get that. Um, One of the things I would suggest is get a good study Bible. Most study Bibles will help us enter into the world of kind of John's readers in the first century. And that'll give us some texture to this symbolism. But what's important to note is that symbolism is just another way of communicating truth. Okay, And so if I can give an example just to bring this to life. I could say, for example, um, I knew a girl growing up who was, she was an awesome girl. She was so much fun. And in high school, she was just, you know, valedictorian, doing all the good stuff. She had 
19 extracurricular activities, and, you know, she got a 4.0 GPA. She was just awesome. But in college, man, she, she fell in with the wrong crowd and got, and just her life changed. She started doing all these crazy things. She was a totally different person, right? I could use all those words to convey truth, right? Or I could simply say, um, there's this girl I knew in high school and even before that growing up, and she fell off the deep end. Now, both those things convey truth, right? They convey the same truth even, right? Now, to take it even a step further, the step that probably Revelation even goes is, is a, um, symbolism and imagery that kind of evokes <laughs> like a visceral or a emotive uh, reaction. So I could say about that same girl, man, that girl has really pulled a Miley Cyrus. <laughs> and everybody here has an idea as to what I'm saying. Now, I'm not saying that that girl is Miley Cyrus, but I'm communicating the exact same truth. And that's how Revelation communicates truth, is it uses symbolism, imagery, to evoke things that the readers at that time would immediately know what what, what John was writing about, and then they would be able to understand what he was saying. So I would encourage you, in all seriousness, grab a good study Bible. We've got some on our website that you can um, check out. ESV Study Bible is a great one. NIV Study Bible. And those types of resources will really help us as readers to understand God's truth in the book of Revelation. So I want to get started. First, let me read from Revelation chapter 21. If you've got your Bible, please open it, or your apps, whatever you do these days, please grab your Bible and turn to Revelation 21. As you do that, I will set up the story just a little bit. So John, the Apostle John, brother of James, one of Jesus's inner circle, kind of his closest disciples, is writing to a group of seven churches in the area of Asia, which is kind of modern-day Turkey, because Jesus um, came, an angel of the Lord, came to John in exile on this island off the coast of Turkey and said, hey, I've got these visions of Jesus for you. And Jesus said, hey, I've got these visions for you, so write them down. They're trustworthy and true. He says that over and over, they're trustworthy and true. Write these down. These are important. So John is writing to these seven churches, okay? And up to this point in the book of Revelation, we're right at the very end of Revelation. We're at the end of the Bible. Um, a lot of things have happened. In the few, first few chapters, Jesus has, has kind of spoken directly to these seven churches. I mean, he's like called them out by name and said, hey, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out like vomit, which is awesome, Right? I mean, talk about imagery. We all know what Jesus is saying there. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. I want to throw you up because you're so unpalatable. That's great imagery. And then he calls out all these churches, and he gives them these warnings and these blessings and different things. And then there's kind of this, this big drama happening where the forces of good and the forces of evil are in cosmic conflict. And then we get to kind of the end of the story, chapters 18, and then 19, 19 hits, and there's this marriage supper between the lamb and his bride, Right? There's this, this, this big celebration between the church and Jesus. And then a rider on a white horse comes and decisively uh, reigns victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And that's what happens in 19 and 20 in preparation for our chapter here in 21. So I'm going to read. If you have your Bibles in your app, it's a lot of setup for one little passage. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Our text today wants us to know one thing, one important thing, and really, this is the most important thing we can know about the entire Bible. It's captured perfectly in this passage right here. There's a main character, there's a plot line, like every good story. Jesus is making all things new. The entire story of the whole Bible is one of God in Christ making all things new. You can take that to the bank because it is good news. And that's what our our text is getting here today. So let's jump into the plot line and then we'll get to the main character. The plot line, look with me at verses 1 through 4. We see here in these first four verses kind of this um, new vision for all things, right? Where Jesus is making all things new. We like to talk about the four-chapter story here at Christ Community, and it's a really helpful framework for thinking about the Bible and life in general, the world as we know it. There's creation, the first chapter, God created all things. There's the fall, the second chapter, mankind sinned against God, throwing everything into destruction, decay, and death. There's redemption through Jesus Christ, through what he did on the cross. We can have redemption. And then there's uh, restoration or new creation, or some people will say consummation, although that sounds like weirdly marital, and I don't like that word very much, consummation. It just sounds so weird, right, to say that out loud. So let's say restoration, okay? Let's just say restoration. So there's uh, creation, fall, redemption, uh, new creation, or restoration. I said we're going to say restoration. And those are really helpful in thinking through because this here is the bookend to the whole book, right? This is the last kind of drama, the last act in the whole drama. And so Jesus gives us this picture of what will be, and that's God's restoration project. And the restoration hardware he uses is Jesus Christ himself. And he gives us three things in this text that he makes new. So I want to think through, what are those three things? Look with me, if you will. The first thing he makes new is a place. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In Genesis, there was a garden. It was pristine. It was perfect. Everything God created was not stained with sin. It was perfect. His people were there. He was there. Everything they needed was there. There was a place for God and his people to dwell, and it was exactly the way it was supposed to be. But then mankind sinned, throwing everything that was into a tailspin, as I said, of death, destruction, and decay. Now, we oftentimes think of those things, especially in the lens of sin, as just a thing that's affecting people. And while that's extremely true, and that's primary, not only are people affected by sin, this world we live in is deeply affected by sin. Death happens to things that are not people, like animals, right? Our, our, Our earth itself breaks down. And many people will say it is, it is actually dying. It is slowly dying. And yet we get this picture here where Jesus will make all things new. 
Jesus makes this new heaven and new earth. In Genesis 1-1, the first line is, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And here, the bookend, the flip side, we see that Jesus makes a new heaven and a new earth, a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. He restores what has been broken by the effects of our sin. And that is a good thing. So there's a place made new. The second thing is a people made new. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will be a people in relationship made new. In the garden, in Genesis 1 and 2, God and his people hung out in perfect communion. There was no relational conflict. There were no problems. There was nothing wrong. Everything was as it was supposed to be. They spent time with their creator. The creatures were in perfect communion with their creator. And then what happened? As I've said before, mankind sinned. And the spiritual reality of sin made a physical reality possible where they could not be around God anymore. He banished them from the garden. The first exile happened and they had to leave the presence of God. And really the story of the Bible to some degree is one of God restoring his presence to his people. Because there's this picture of broken relationship happening. And here in verses 2 and 3, we see there's, there's this people in relationship restored with their God, where God will now be their God in fullness and they will be his people in fullness. That verse is actually taken from a, 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 a verse in Leviticus where God promises to be with his people, where God promises that he will be their God and they will be his people. And here in this, this renewed new, uh, new heaven, this renewed heaven, this renewed earth, there will be God's people and God's presence dwelling perfectly together in perfect communion once again. So there's a renewed place, a renewed people, and there's a reality made new. In the garden in Genesis, as I said, um, there was life and life abundant, right? Adam and Eve had everything they needed. There was no toil. There was, there was no hard work, though I think there was work because they were called to kind of keep and cultivate the garden, this goodness of work. There was no toil in that work. Childbearing was only a blessing. It was not painful. And then what happened? Adam and Eve sinned which brought this new reality to life. If there's one fundamental part of our reality today about life, it's that it ends, right? It's that death is real in a world where sin is present. Death is the logical end to sin, the Bible will say. Death is what happens when sin is present because death is is antithetical to God's good design And yet, when we sin, we brought death into this world. Before that, there was life and life abundant. You'll notice if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, they could eat from the tree of life all they wanted to. There was one tree they couldn't eat from, and they ate from that, right? And it's a hard truth, but it's it's the reality. And the reality of today is that death still is winning in this world, it seems like. 
And yet this new reality that God is giving us in his word is that we will once again have life and life abundant and there will be no death. He says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus, like a father with his child, will wipe away the effects of sin in this world. There will be no mourning, no crying, because there will be no pain. There will be no loss. We will literally have everything we have ever needed and ever will need because we will be living in perfect communion in the perfect place with our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Amen? I think that's my child. So it's okay. John wrote this book to, I should say, Jesus wrote this book through John to its original audience for a number of reasons, and sometimes it's hard to understand why. But the original readers of this, of this book, the, the people who heard this first, were dealing with a lot of things, okay? So this is probably 90s AD. This is a whole generation removed from Jesus, okay? And these people, these people were, were um, dealing with increased suffering and pain and, and martyrdom because of their faith. They had to stand up for this person, Jesus, that many of them, though John knew Jesus, many of them probably had never met or seen Jesus. Maybe he had not met Paul or any of these people. Um, many of them probably hadn't met John. Some probably had. And so they were dealing with these things. On top of that, there were, um, you know, like false teachers and false prophets who had moved onto the spiritual neighborhood. And there are all these people dragging people away from the church. And, and one of the reasons I think Jesus wrote this book to his people here is because they were living in this world where death and sin ran rampant. And it's hard to believe that Jesus is making anything new, let alone he's making all things new, right? And we can empathize with that. In a world where it seems like death never ends... How many of you guys know somebody who, uh, you know, who, who, how many of you guys know somebody who came back from the dead? Nobody, right? Jesus, thank you. Squ- <laughs> squirrel question. Um, I, sh- I should have framed that differently, and then you could have done that on purpose. That would have been great. Um, but we live in a world where sin and death seem like they reign supreme still, right? I don't know anybody who's come back to life except Jesus. Because everybody dies, it seems like. So we can empathize with the people, and yet the gospel, the good news about Jesus, tells us that we can believe that there will be a time when there is no death, even though we might die. I hope we don't. I hope Jesus comes back before. But even though we might die, there will be a time where we are brought back to life and where we reign with him and live with him in perfect communion. The gospel calls us to believe this truth even though it's hard in a world where death and sin still seem to reign. This new reality, there will be no death, and the gospel calls us to believe this. So we've seen a little bit about the plot line. Let's move on to the main character. The main character we see here in verses 5 to 7 is Jesus, right? The main character of this grand story, this Bible we've been reading through, this exciting thing we've been doing for a whole year now. The main character um, is Jesus. He makes it evidently clear that Jesus is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. Right? Colossians will say that. And so here in verses 5 through 7, let me read them again. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one, who, uh, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This big story we walked through, if you go back to Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God. The last verse of Revelation says this, Come, I've got it right here. I don't know why I have to look at my sheet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. It's unmistakable who the main character in this story is. As much as we want to think that this book is about us, though we're part of this story, this book is about one person. His name is Jesus. And that is good news as well. But here we see a couple of different things. Our our text this morning pictures Jesus in two unique ways that help us believe what it's saying. The first is this. Jesus is the ruler upon the throne. Look with me at verse 5 again. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Earlier in verse 3, he said, A voice comes from the one on the throne. Here's this beautiful picture, this beautiful imagery once again. Instead of Revelation saying Jesus is powerful, Jesus is infinitely almighty and, and has all power. Instead, Revelation puts Jesus on a throne and lets our mind run wild with the goodness of this king who has all things under his creation. All things are under his care. All things he can do. Jesus is the ruler on the throne. And the second thing, Jesus is both the cause and the close. Look with me at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. That sounds like John 19, right? Where he says it is finished on the cross. He says here it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The New Testament was written in the, in, in the Greek language. For those of you who don't, who don't know that, um, it's written in Greek. The first and last letter in Greek, in the Greek alphabet, are alpha and omega. So Jesus, again, using this beautiful word picture to say, hey, I'm the beginning and the end. And in case we didn't get it, he puts it in there for us English readers. He says right after, I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end, right? For idiots like me. Um, probably not you guys. Um, But he's trying to say here that he was there at the beginning and here we see him right there at the end, right? Because once again, he's trying to show us how, you know, John 1 will say that in the beginning was God, uh, in in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Sometimes we think that only God the Father was in the beginning. But here we see this, this picture of Jesus in the beginning, this picture of Jesus in the end. And when you put that together, this picture, this alpha and omega and this picture of Jesus ruling on the throne, we get this, this idea that Jesus has perfect power over all things in time and space and history because he is eternal one direction and eternal the other, and he can do all things because he's the perfect ruler. He conquered over death by dying. Do you know how hard that is to do? I don't. Conceptually, I can't even really understand it. And yet he has the power to do that. So as we look through this passage, we can, we can see that Jesus is this, this, this ruler, this sovereign ruler over all things. Now, the original audience, like I said, the people who first got this book, uh, they probably didn't know Jesus. 
They were in an area of Turkey, so far away from, from Palestine. They probably didn't know who Jesus was. And as they're dealing with this increased suffering and more people are dying and sin seems to be running rampant, they're probably saying to themselves, I don't know if I can believe in this guy. I never even saw him. This guy John writes me letters. He was with Jesus. I have to trust Jesus through John? Like, what is that? And here we are today, you know, thousands of years later. And sometimes it can seem hard to trust that Jesus is making anything new. And yet, he ties it back to our salvation to show us that he is making all things new. He says there in verse 7, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. He's saying, I give life through grace to those who ask for it. That's you and me, friends. If you've believed in Jesus, he's talking to us. He's saying, hey, remember that thing I did in your heart when I changed it? That's what I'm going to do to the whole world someday. And that is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for this day, for this morning. Um, And we just ask in this time that you would impress upon our hearts the goodness of what you have done. But Lord, on top of that, we also ask that you would give us a vision for what you will do and how that influences us today. Lord, how this good news, this new vision for what life will be with you, for life and life abundant in a new heaven and a new earth where where Jerusalem, where the meeting place between you and your people comes down to earth. Jesus, help us to see that in such a way that it influences how we interact with our coworkers, our our family members. Lord, that it might influence how we raise our kids, how we have fun over the holidays. Lord, we just ask that our lives would be changed. Lord, you tell us that you are making all things new and we believe you. But Lord, as, as, as we've heard before, we believe, but help our unbelief. Because we see in this world, we see sin and we see death. We see decay and destruction. And sometimes our hearts, our hearts struggle to believe in you. And yet, Jesus, we want to believe. We want to believe in you. So, Lord, give us this vision anew. Change our hearts for your glory and our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.